We're continuing in our study of the book of Jonah. And to introduce our study this week, I want to refer to something Jesus said in the ancient world that sent shockwaves through that ancient world. And its reverberations are still felt today as people wrestle with the bizarreness of it, intrigued by it, and seek to apply it, which is really almost impossible to do. And that saying from Jesus is this. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Miroslav Volf is a professor of theology at Yale University, and he has famously said, if you take love your enemy out of Christianity, you have unchristianed the Christian faith. Isn't that interesting? In the winter of 1993, he was giving a lecture on this idea of how we ought to embrace our enemies because Christ has embraced us. And in the middle, or not the middle, in the middle of the question and answer time, someone stood up and asked him this question. But can you embrace Setnik? Wolf is a Croat, and he watched his country be ravished by the Serbians. And when he heard this question, I mean, no doubt, beads of sweat began to form in his forehead. He just mentioned that we ought to embrace our enemies, and someone confronts him with the question, are you willing to embrace your enemies? And this is what he said. For months now, the notorious Serbian fighters called Setnik have been sowing desolation in my native country, herding people into concentration camps, raping women, burning down churches, and destroying cities. I just argued that we ought to embrace our enemies as God has embraced us in Christ. Can I embrace Setnik, the ultimate other, so to speak, the evil other? What would justify the embrace? Where would I draw strength for it? What would it do to my identity as a human and as a Croat? It took me a while to answer, though I immediately knew what I wanted to say. No, I cannot. But as a follower of Christ... I think I should be able to. My thought was pulled in two different directions, by the blood of the innocent crying out to God and by the blood of God's lamb offered for the guilty. How does one remain loyal to both the demands of the oppressed for justice and to the gift of forgiveness that the crucified offered to perpetrators? I felt caught between two betrayals, the betrayal of the suffering, exploited and excluded, and the betrayal of at the very core of my faith. In a sense, even more disturbingly, I felt my very faith at odds with itself, divided between the God who delivers the needy and the God who abandoned the crucified, between the demand to bring about justice for the victims and the call to embrace the perpetrator. You see, for Wolf, loving your enemy is no easy matter. We hear Jesus say those words and it sends reverberations through our soul but when it comes down to actually loving those people we would rather hate, how do we go about doing that? And how do we do that if that seemingly means the miscarriage of justice? Well, Jonah the prophet never heard those words of Jesus. He lived centuries before Jesus. But he did serve Yahweh, the God, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. That verse, of course, is taken from the book of Exodus and the story of Moses 
On the one hand, God is loving and patient and kind and forgiving. But on the other hand, he will by no means clear the guilty. How do we live with that? How do we wrestle with that? How do we apply that to our own life? Jonah, the prophet, prophesied during a time of darkness in his own land. But to a surprise, God called him to go to Nineveh. Called two times in the scriptures that great city. And his fellow prophet, Nahum, described it as a city of blood, full of lies and plunder, never without victims. I mean, no prophet had been sent outside of Israel to speak to other nations. They were always sent to their own. And Jonah received this call. And he decides, perhaps, God must have lost his mind. And so, instead of going to the uh, east, to Nineveh, we can see off the side of the screen there, he decides to board a ship and head the exact opposite way towards Tarshish, on the coast of Spain. And on his voyage there, God sent this storm, as one commentator put it, as like a heat-seeking missile that surrounded this vessel. And during this time, this hardened sailors were freaking out, and they decided to cast lots and see who it was among them that was guilty, that was upsetting the gods. And of course, that, that lot fa- uh, fell onto Jonah. And Jonah, when he saw that, must have just had his heart sink. Here he is on the run from God, and this storm is here, and he realizes that all this is happening because of him. And so he tells the sailors to throw him off the side of the boat, and he will perish, and yet they will be saved. Which was interesting. Back when we looked at Jonah chapter 2, we, we saw how Jonah, rather than repenting before the Lord, would rather die than be sent to Nineveh. And so the trajectory we saw from Jonah's flight from, from the Lord looked like this. He, he went down to Joppa on the coast. He went down into the ship. He went down to the belly of the ship. He went down into the deep sea. He went down into the belly of the fish. And he went down into the belly of the grave, as he called it. And there, being supernaturally kept alive by God in the belly of this great fish, prayed, and he he had this determination that God was going to be merciful to him and allow him to live. And he said these words, But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Jonah, in this moment of complete and utter darkness, being kept alive by the power of God, has this conviction that he will live and he will go back to Israel, worship at the temple, and make his sacrifices. And so we're told, of course, that God directed this fish to cough him back up on the shore. And can you imagine being Jonah in this moment? (laughs) You survive what no human (laughs) has experienced before. He had to smell horribly, I imagine. But here he is, he's alive. And that sense that that God was going to, to save him, to not let him die in that moment, came true. And so waves of relief must have swept over him, Right? As he thinks, oh, I can go back to Israel to worship God and to resume my life. But Jonah needed to experience another level of what we're going to call the relentless grace of God. So we're going to be in Jonah chapter 3. And as we dive into this scripture, let's listen to what it says in verse 1. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise! Go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. I wonder if Jonah in his heart was going, oh no. I thought thought that was behind me. 
Remember in the very first chapter, the word of the Lord came to him and said, Arise. And that's what sent him on his journey away from the Lord. Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, because its evil has risen before me. Jonah's not going back to Israel. There he is, soaking wet, completely covered in stomach acid and goop that's inside a whale. He had to have been a horrible sight. The word of the Lord comes to him again. Let me just put this in context for us again. There is a the time in, in the scriptures, you can read about this in 2 Kings, when Hezekiah refused to pay uh, basically money to Assyria to not attack them. And Assyria, where Nineveh is, attacked the city called Lachish and utterly decimated it. You can actually go and see these wall murals in a British museum of history that were taken from the city of Nineveh. And it shows the siege of Lachish. You see soldiers with their, uh, I forget what those are called, you had the stone in them, and you sling, a sling, right? <laughs> That's what it's called. You see them with arrows here uh, attacking the city. And here's in another one. You see soldiers bringing uh, Jews before the king to ask for mercy. Some of them were beheaded. Some of them were impaled on wooden stakes. Some of them were skinned alive, as the Assyrians loved to do. See, my friends, Assyria was an ancient terrorist state, and Jonah was called a second time to go and proclaim God's message to its capital, Nineveh, which at the time was the largest city in the ancient world. So put yourself in the sandals of Jonah if he's still wearing them at this moment. God has called you once to go to them, and you said, no way, and you head off the opposite direction. And now the word of the Lord comes to you again and says, Jonah, arise and go to that city of Nineveh and preach the message I'm going to preach to you. Would you go? Let me just modernize this a little bit. What if you were sent to ISIS, which are the modern-day descendants of those ancient Ninevites, and were to speak against it, the message God gave you? Would you want to go? That would be tough, right? <laughs> what if you ran away from the Lord and he got a hold of you and says, no, really, seriously, I want you to go and preach to these terrorists? I don't know about you, but I think I'd rather try my luck with uh, another ship going to Tarshish again, <laughs> see what happens. But um, we're told in verse 3, Jonah, so Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. There's a sense in which in this moment of resignation, he says, not my will, but yours be done. And he makes his march toward that ancient city. We're told in verse 3, Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. And Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey. Remember, Nahum said this was a city filled with violence, filled with blood, this largest city in the ancient world. And you're walking for a day in the midst of this. What are you seeing? What horrors are grabbing hold of you? How are you freaking out, wondering how this is going to turn out? So he walks a day into the heart of this city. And we're told in verse 4, And he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. That's it. That, that's the sermon. What do you think about that? 
Now, this likely is a summary of the preaching of Jonah, but notice the message. It's all bad news for Nineveh. When God sends a prophet somewhere, the implication is if you don't turn, it's going to end up badly for you. But the implication also has a good news side to it. If you turn, it will end up well for you. But here he goes and he says to them, yet for 40 days and Nineveh will be overturned. It's, it's all bad news. And we don't know if Jonah was faithful to the message that he was supposed to speak or if this is exactly what God wanted him to speak. But these words are recorded for us. And he tells Nineveh, if you don't, if you don't turn around, if you don't repent, you're going to be overthrown. Your city's going to fall. It's going to go badly for you. And someone says, see, this is why I don't like Christianity. It's all about judgment, wrath, and hellfire. I think God is a loving God. As, as modern-day folks living in our culture, this is something that we wrestle with. We think that love and wrath cannot exist in the same person. We think grace and judgment are at odds, that forgiveness and justice can't exist together, that mercy and retribution have to be at odds. They cannot coexist in the same person at the same time. So we're told never to have wrath, never to have judgment, not to seek justice or retribution, but then we can't live with ourselves because we feel like we're betraying something of the moral fiber of the universe if we don't seek justice. So how do we make sense of this? Well, Miroslav Volf, the guy I mentioned earlier at the beginning of our time together, wrote this book called Free of Charge, and he said this, I used to think that wrath was unworthy of God. Isn't God love? God is love, and God loves every person and every creature. That's exactly why God is wrathful against some of them. My last resistance to the idea of God's wrath was a casualty of the war in, for, in the former Yugoslavia, the region from which I come. According to some estimates, 200,000 people were killed and over 3 million were displaced. My villages and cities were destroyed. My people shelled day in and day out. Some of them brutalized beyond imagination. And I could not imagine God not being angry. Or think of Rwanda in the last decade of the past century where 800,000 people were hacked to death in 100 days. How did God react to the carnage? By doting on the perpetrators in a grandfatherly fashion? By refusing to condemn the bloodbath? but instead affirming the perpetrator's basic goodness? Wasn't God fiercely angry with them? Though I used to complain about the indecency of the idea of God's wrath, I came to think that I would have to rebel against a God who wasn't wrathful at the sight of the world's evil. God isn't wrathful in spite of being love. God is wrathful because God is love. Let me see if I can bring this home for you. Think about how you respond when someone you love is being hurt. Say that you had a six or seven-year-old kid, and you looked out in the front yard where, where he or she was playing, and all of a sudden they're surrounded by bullies in junior high, and you see them picking on them. What are you going to do? Are you just going to kind of sit back? Aren't you going to go out there and save that child? Aren't you going to even use force if necessary? Aren't you going to warn them in the strictest terms? that if they do not leave your child alone, it will not go well with them. You see, my friends, if, if you and I have that impulse, why can't God have that impulse as well? So that's the message Jonah preached. He called out, yet 40 days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. 
Now think about Jonah standing up in the middle of this city saying those words. This ancient terrorist state, these people who loved violence, had no problem with shedding another person's blood. Jonah stands up. If you guys don't turn it around, you're going to be overthrown. I imagine the response that he would have dreaded would have been something like this, like, stop, you've got to be kidding. Nobody overthrows Nineveh. We're the ones who take down nations. Nobody messes with Nineveh and lives to tell about it. (laughs) Nineveh can't be overthrown. We're the ones who overthrow people. And we don't like your message, so we're going to make you shut up. I mean, that's what I would have thought would have happened. And I'm sure Jonah, in preaching to these people, thought this would happen. That's probably like the best case scenario he could think of. We're told in verse 5, the unthinkable happened. The people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. Here's Jonah preaching in the midst of this terrible, horrible place. And he preaches them a message of judgment. And then miracle of miracles happen. The entire city repents. In fact, verse 6 tells us, the word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. (laughs) This is the king who gives the orders to have someone beheaded or skinned alive or impaled. He's the one who gives the orders for Nineveh to attack other places. He's the one who directs the military to expand his borders. And yet, at the thought that the God of Israel is going to hold him account, he repents. Verse 7, the scripture tells us, He issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth, and let them call out mightily to God. Here's a decree from the king. Sends it out throughout this large city. Nobody eat. Nobody drink. Cover yourself with sackcloth. Cover your animals in sackcloth. This was an ancient way of showing Um, remorse and and humility and to call out mightily to the Lord. When you think of someone calling out mightily to God, what does that look like? I don't imagine someone just kind of whispering a prayer (laughs) under their breath. I mean, to call out mightily means to use all your strength to call out to God, to have mercy. He says in verse 8, let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Here's an evil king realizing that his empire is filled with evil people, filled with violence, and he instructs everyone to turn. That word turn I have highlighted there. It's the ancient word that means simply to repent. It's shuv in Hebrew. And to repent or to turn means to change the direction you have been going. So everyone's been going this way of evil, and he calls them to repent and go towards the way of righteousness. Righteousness is simply the word that means right living with God and others. He calls them to turn, to repent, to stop going this way and have a change of heart and go the opposite way. 
This word was used by the prophet Jeremiah when he was sent to Israel. These are the words that God instructed him with. Go up and down the streets of Jerusalem. Look around and consider. Search through her squares. If you can find but one person who deals honestly and seeks the truth, I will forgive this city. They have made their faces harder than stone and refused to repent. Jeremiah came after Jonah. But what Jonah thought would happen in Nineveh, that they refused to repent, actually happened among his own people in Israel. So the the king of Nineveh tells his people to turn, to repent. And he says in verse 9, Who knows? God may turn and relent from his... I'm sorry, let me say that again. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. You notice it? There's that same word. He called the people of Nineveh to turn. And he says, who knows? Maybe God will turn. Maybe he will turn from his fierce anger. And maybe he will relent so that we may not perish. (laughs) If they but knew of the relentless grace of God, who is looking for an excuse, so to speak, to forgive to welcome people who turn to him. In fact, we're told in verse 10, when God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented from the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. Even though this ancient city deserved to be overthrown, like Sodom and Gomorrah to be left as nothing but ashes, God in his kindness and his relentless grace sent a prophet who spoke a very negative message. And when they repented, God turned from what he was going to do. And salvation comes to the city. So can we just take a moment and appreciate what happened then? The entire city turned at the repentance of a very negative message from Jonah. Not even Jerusalem when Jesus and his disciples into Jerusalem after he had been crucified and resurrected, repented a whole scale. Like some three to 5,000 people repented at the preaching of the apostles. But here we're told the ancient city of Nineveh, from the greatest to the least, from the king to the poorest pauper, repented at the preaching of Jonah. Yet someone greater than Jonah arrived on this thing. I got a couple points of application, three in particular. First one is this. Let's hear in the words of Jonah a preview of the preaching of Jesus. Let's hear in those words that Jonah spoke to Nineveh a preview of the preaching of Jesus. What do I mean by that? The Gospel of Mark, we're told, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God, that is the good news of God, and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Turn from the direction you're going and turn back to God. Just like Jonah spoke words, so Jesus spoke words. But, but Jesus' invitation was to turn. See, when Jesus used that word repent, Jesus meant for us to turn from living for ourselves to the God who created us to live for him. The Ninevites were created to live for God, but they lived for themselves. The Israelites, the time of Jesus, were meant to live for God, but they lived for themselves. You and I, 
created by God and designed to live for him. But as we mentioned earlier, we've all turned astray and gone our own ways. We live for ourselves. So when Jesus spoke and said, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand, Jesus is talking about the overthrow of this world. You see, the good news Jesus spoke entails the overthrow of the way that things are and the establishment of a new world order called the kingdom of God. We're not talking about a conspiracy of elites who are trying to bring in a new world order and control everyone. We're talking about the reign of God coming that will establish a new world order. Jesus described it as a renewal of all things. Or in another place, he called it paradise. The way this world was meant to be. In fact, one of the prophets put it like this. When the kingdom of God comes, the wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together, and a little child shall lead them. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Here's that vision of that new world order coming. Jesus described as the kingdom of God that will overthrow the present way things are. My friends, if you ever looked at this world and seen all the war and desolation, the oppression and the violence, and have ever, in a, in a rare moment, just longed for a different world, Jesus says it's coming. It's coming. So in Jesus, we hear the prediction of the overthrow of this present world and the promise of the new world to come. So let's hear in the words of Jonah a preview of the preaching of Jesus. Here's a second point of application. Let's marvel at our Creator who desires to show mercy even to the most undeserving. Do you remember what the king of Nineveh said? Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. He heard it's going to end badly for them. But he says, who knows? Maybe. Maybe if we repent, God himself will have mercy on us. He will repent of, or to turn from his intended action. Oh, if he could have heard the words of Jesus. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Jesus here is not talking about the the overthrow of a city. He's talking about the overthrow of our rebellion against God. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. And this is the judgment, Jesus said. The light has come into the world, speaking of himself, and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. You see here in the teaching of Jesus, this God of love, this God of grace, this God of mercy, who in Jesus is willing to forgive and have mercy. But people refuse to come to Jesus. Why? As he says here, because our deeds are evil. And so let's just stress this point. From the gospel of Jesus Christ, apart from the mercy of God offered to us in Christ, we too will perish in our sins. Don't get mad at me. <laughs> Don't say you're just one of those judgmental Christians. I'm simply telling you what Jesus, the greatest man who ever lived, said. God so loved the world that he sent Jesus that we might not perish. But apart from Jesus, we will perish. An ongoing perishment in this world of lostness and an eternal perishment 
apart from the presence of God. But that's not what God wants. He longs to show mercy. The way Isaiah the prophet put it is like this. In repentance and rest is your salvation. In quietness and trust is your strength. Therefore, the Lord longs to be gracious to you. Do you believe that, my friends? That this creator longs to be gracious to you. He rises to show mercy to you. He will surely be gracious to you at the sound of your cry. As soon as he hears it, he answers you. Just like Nineveh, as they cried out mightily to God, God answered and relented from the disaster he was going to bring. So when we cry out to him, we find nothing but grace and mercy, which God is inclined to give in droves. The way Peter put it to his apostle, the Lord does not delay his promise, as some understand delay, but is patient with you, not wanting any to perish, but all to come to repentance. So from Jesus, we learn that God is more willing to forgive than we are to ask for it, which is amazing. Do you believe that? I think sometimes we think that God is really reluctant to forgive us. I mean, after what we did, after what I said, after that thought, there's no way. But Jesus says, yes, God is more willing to forgive than you are to ask for it. I base this on something Jesus said. Remember when he wept over the city of Jerusalem? He said, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stone those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you were not willing. Jesus came preaching peace to Jerusalem. But Jerusalem, like Hezekiah's day when he refused to pay the ransom to uh, Assyria and took his odds on what a battle with them might look like. Jerusalem, in Jesus' time, was willing to gamble war with Rome. And Jesus said, if you would have responded to me, what is going to happen could have been averted. But you were not willing. Take the Apostle Paul, this man who oversaw the execution of the first Christians. He said, here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Manny, can you afford that for me? Here's a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. But for that very reason, I was shown mercy, so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his immense patience as an example for those who would believe in him and receive eternal life. Paul says, if anyone wonders if God will have grace on them, just look at me. I am the worst of the worst. I imagine the Ninevites would have said, no, no, Paul, we are the worst of the worst, and God had mercy on us. So use the example of Paul and the Ninevites to believe that God would have mercy upon you as well. So that first point of application was, let's hear in the words of Jonah a preview of the preaching of Jesus. That second point of application was, let's marvel at our Creator who desires to show mercy even to the most undeserving. And and here's the third point. Let's turn to the one who was overthrown for us and for our, for our salvation. The Apostle Paul put it like this. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Not the godly, the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. What does that mean? 
when we were still enemies of God, Christ died for us. Like the Ninevites, who were enemies of God, and God showed mercy. God has mercy upon us in Christ as well. Peter put it like this, for Christ also suffered once for the sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. My friend, here's the dilemma resolved. Remember we talked about how, how do you reconcile love and wrath? How does that coexist in the same person? God is right to be angry with humans like you and me who hurt other people. But at the same time, he longs to show mercy. So how does he do that? My friends, when, when Christ died on the cross, God piled up sins of people like you and me and there condemned them in his flesh. We sing this song at Mercy Hill. I didn't think of it in time to get it into our music team for this week. But Let Us Love and Sing and Wonder has this wonderful line. Let us wonder, grace and justice join and point to mercy's story. When through grace in Christ our trust is, justice smiles and asks no more. You see, in God, I'm sorry, in Christ, God was able to exercise justice in condemning our sins in his flesh so that you and I might receive mercy and grace, which is his desire to give us in the first place. And so, in just a moment, we're going to sing a song. Oh, come to the altar. The Father's arms are open wide. Forgiveness was bought with the precious blood of Jesus. Oh, what a Savior. Isn't he wonderful? Sing hallelujah. Christ is risen. Bow down before him. For he is Lord of all. Sing hallelujah. Christ is risen. My friends, Jonah is a crazy example. But we have someone so much better than Jonah. We have Jesus, who is greater than Jonah, who laid down his life for people like you and me. So let's worship him.